0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 330, recorded April 4th, 2023. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aukin. And you can connect with us over on Facedon. Uh If you're on Mastodon, find us there. I'm at mkennedy at Fostadon.org. Brian's Brian Aukin over there. And the show is at Python Bytes at Fostadon.org. And if... You're interested in the video version? Check out PythonBytes.fm/live. Click that. Go over to the YouTube channel, subscribe, get notified. And you'll get a little pop-up when we start streaming live. It's always fun to, to be part of it. We encourage people to check the show out that way as well. So, Brian, let's start off with something that has been almost exactly one year in the works.
1: I well, I was just going to ask you about that. So, um, uh, we. Was this about a year ago we talked about this pydantic uh, I th-
0: rewrite I think I think I saw something on Twitter of all places um, from Samuel Colvin saying it was April 4th 2022 that I started working on pydantic version 2. Okay. so that sounds like to the day
1: okay well um it's it's not completely here yet but it's here enough to try. so I'm pretty excited about it. so pydantic uh, v2 uh, version two pre-release. Um, so people can it's available now. So people can install it. You have to do the like the uh pip install dash dash pre uh pinantic, and then you can say butantic greater than or equal to 2.0 a1, I guess if you want to get the A- alpha one or better. So the big news is alpha one's available. Um and it's pretty exciting. Uh, there's a whole bunch of great stuff changes. We've talked. I think we talked about it. You talked about it on your show. I think also. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the um, uh, the headlines here is uh, one. One, it's not complete yet. This is the alpha. We're not even as yet. So if you see, if you try it out and you see something, um, they've got a uh, GitHub created GitHub issue. Um, And they want to they want to have people use the bug V2 label uh, to create issues around the version two um, because they want to hop on those right away. Anyway, so uh, the big change was one of the big changes was to move all a lot of Pydantic um, and the rules and and everything into uh, a different module called Pydantic core. That one's mostly written in Rust. And um, and so it's like five to 50 times faster uh overall uh with for performance so that's pretty exciting because these are i mean this is when you're using pedantic it's it's hitting for every interaction right so as fast as possible is great um and i do like the idea of the like the separating the rust part out into a different module um a uh, different package Pydantic core so that uh they can have kind of uh, maintain it and have safety and maintain maintenance around that a little separate um, I think that makes sense. So,
0: yeah. And people used to have to create their derived classes and put a lot of their customization, and their, you know, um, what's called root level validators and things like that, where it's like, I want to validate the whole class, not just a certain field. Or, you know, if this is set, then that has to be set that way. Like a lot of those things had to be done in an OOP way. And I think mm-hmm. with the Pydantic core, you have more direct access to like a layer below. So it's not just faster, which is fantastic, but it also, Opens up like more ways to interact with PyDantic, which is cool. Yeah,
1: um, so they have got a lot of stuff uh, working already. Um, they want people to be able to experiment and try out their base model. The changes, the a uh, lot of the same features for validation, but the uh, there's new method names and it's it is a change. Uh, data classes, serialization, strict mode, different schemas, uh, lots of changes for v2. So uh, I'd like people to try it out. Um, the uh, there is a lot of stuff still under construction, mostly documentation. Um, and some of the, like some of the base settings have changed from there, they, they were base settings and now they're going to be in by, by settings. That's not quite ready. Um, so there's, there's, there's still some work to do, uh, even in the migration guide. So there's, they've gotten a start on the migration guide, but it's not there. As you see, on like the, the, some of the links, there's, uh, changes to data classes, changes to base model, some of the, some of the stuff's already there. But it's still under under construction, so pretty exciting.
0: I'm I'm definitely excited, and the five to fifty times faster—that's no joke. There's you might think, okay, well, what are you doing? I'm like parsing like a settings file, or I got a single JSON document, whatever. All the fast API is deeply not all, but much of fast API is deeply based on exchanging rich data with Pydantic, right? So your API layer could get much faster, right? And you can also use this people maybe don't realize it um, you can use this with other frameworks as well you could use it with flask you could use it with pyramid you know fast api is cool cuz you can put just there's a argument of type pydantic model and it automatically fills it all in but all you got to do is just take here's the post dictionary and feed it to a pydantic model like just inside the function as the first line and you're in the same place yeah so you can use this across all these areas then, for example, pythonbytes.fm is powered by Beanie, which is Pydantic plus MongoDB plus async, which is awesome. Mm. But every single database record comes back, goes through Pydantic. And if you're using something like Beanie or SQL model in FastAPI, your data layer goes through Pydantic and your web layer, because there's like multi-layered Pydantic operations on every interaction. And so making that part five to 50 times faster is just huge right that's a really big surface area to make a lot faster i got speed ups as well to talk about later in the show but yeah, it's, so that, it's I guess not that much area that's awesome
1: one of the the things you bring up which is interesting is that a lot of people there's i mean there's tons of people that use Pydantic just by by itself uh with their own code mm-hmm. yeah um but the the people that mostly touch it through fast api or beanie or something they may have to wait until those projects on this the changes then then um, unless the, those projects have branches for v2 which who knows
0: I yeah yeah I hope so um and maybe so. there's a way you know I think the the breaking changes in say base model for example are I think they're kind of deprecated already in okay. 1.10.7 just they're still there right but I think they become breaking changes here um <laughs> if you're also if you're doing uh, model validation a lot of the function names gets changed. Um, yeah, like things like from RM go away. There's a bunch of little. I don't think they're big changes that are going to be a huge problem for people, but they are incompatibilities, as you point out. Both yeah. Roman Wright and Sebastian Ramirez are seem to be really on top of their projects, respectively, Beanie and Fast API. So, I feel like by the time this becomes fully released,
1: they'll they'll be there. Yeah, and what's one of the reasons why I covered is to try to like. Promoted nudge, nudge, and, hey, hey work, exactly, nudge, nudge, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> please.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. yes, yeah. indeed, yeah, it would be awesome that when this comes out for just boom, v2 is out. Like, you just update all the packages that depend upon it, and you, you can adopt it right away. That would be great. But
1: to be fair, like let's say I'm working on a like a, a side project that's using FastAPI or Beanie or something, and I don't have it in production yet. I'd be like, yeah, let's use v2 right, right, or right away. But if I've got a production system, I don't want to switch right away. So I I, I get that there's there's projects at different lo- levels and, and group projects like FastAPI and Beanie have to keep that in mind. So, yeah.
0: All right. All right well, well, this is exciting to me. Uh, I know this has been coming for a long time. So excellent work. What you got for us? Well, that's a quick, real, quick real-time follow-up. I interviewed Samuel Colvin. He loves to do stuff on the 4th of June months, apparently, on August 4th as <laughs> well, last year, called Pitanic V2, The Plan. So people can check that out if they're, they're interested. But let's talk about something really small, okay? Um, okay? From a friend of the show, Miguel Grinberg. And he created this thing called MicroDot. MicroDot, it's very small. It's it's bigger even than like the, the semi-dot or the regular dot. Very small. <laughs>
1: no, so what quit. this is...
0: Yeah, so back to web frameworks. Um, this is the impossibly small web framework for Python and MicroPython. Hmm. So it's, I believe its reason for existence really is to basically bring something like Flask to MicroPython and CircuitPython, which is cool. However, it also runs under standard C Python, which opens up some interesting possibilities as well. Cool. So uh, if we go down here. So if you're familiar with the Flask API, you should be real familiar with Microdot. So app equals, instead of Flask, you say Microdot. Got a function. It says, I want to do an app dot route on it. Or I don't know if he supports a direct verb, no, HTTP verbs there, like app dot get, app dot post, like Flask adopted recently, but app dot route for sure. And then one of the differences is you have to pass a request object into the functions there, whereas Flask has this thread local ambient variation of this thing. So you'll get like a 500 error if you try to, you know, just run this directly without adding that request. So it's easy to overlook. But other than that, other than the fact that there's a request parameter to the views, basically the same thing. Hmm. Okay, so yeah, that's pretty interesting. Now, there's a bunch of compromises that are made here because MicroPython doesn't support Jinja, it doesn't support Flask, all of these different things. All right, so um, there is a template language, but it's not um, it's not Jinja, right? So there's a bit of a migration if you were going to take this on, right? So you can run it under C Python, but you can also run it under um, Micro Python. There's the HTTP methods. I think you do the old style. Yeah, I don't know. No, no, there is a there's an app. Get you can do the old style where you pass the method names like get and post, or you can just do an app. Get, but yeah, if Again, if you're familiar with Flask, the way you do routes, the way you pass data into the functions, all those things are absolutely the same, which is pretty cool. One thing you can do is you can return JSON responses, and you can even just return a dictionary, which I don't think you can do in Flask. Um, maybe maybe you can, but I think you have to JSONify it. I think you have to say Flask.jsonify. So this is kind of an upgrade, I would say. Um, so if you have a little tiny thing, like, let's get it. little tiny thing like okay. this, Brian. Okay. All right here, how, however big is that, you know, like not about the size of my hand, like the, the half the way across the pole of my hand. Got one of these little tiny MicroPython, CircuitPython things. You can now put APIs on here, and you can put even really interesting things like it has support for um, concurrency. So Flask doesn't support directly having async and await, I don't believe. Not fully, anyway. You got to switch over to court to do that. I, I think they partially support it, but not, not full async and await. But you can use the, the MicroPython async I.O. extension here and get APIs running with full async and await concurrency support doing JSON or other things, maybe with Python, not sure. That's
1: pretty cool because a lot of the, I mean, that's just an easy, like throwing a REST API or some sort of API on something to throw back JSON to, um, to uh, it, that would be really cool. And you don't need, I mean, for for applications like that, you don't need a lot of templating around, so.
0: Um, yeah, and so let's see. Go to the core extensions here. You can see there's actually a bunch of cool core extensions. So got the async and await support. So all you got to do is just uh, where I'm gonna scroll. Just write async def endpoint. Right? Boom, off it goes.
1: <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you really want to async that hello world.
0: Yeah, for hello world, not so much. But if you're talking to you know files at similar database or something.
1: Yeah, yeah sure.
0: Um, you can use what is that micro template? It says U template, but I bet it's a a
1: micro. Uh yeah, my, I think it's pronounced yeah. uh template.
0: Uh template. Yeah, u template. Um <laughs> It's a lightweight memory memory efficient template for Python um, which it looks very very uh jinja like as well. So that's a pretty yeah. straightforward thing, but that's it's not cool. identical, right? Uh, what else we got? Ooh, got this is jinja, is it? So. Oh, can you? Oh, you huh, well, But no, hold on. It's C Python only. Oh, okay. Okay, right? got it. So, cuz it's not supported in MicroPython. Got
1: um, it. But you but anymore. if you're if you're doing it on CPython, you can you can add those templates. So.
0: Yes, yeah, so this is actually why it's pretty interesting to me. So, you can do um, TLS, HTTPS support, right, which is pretty cool. You have web sockets, you have asynchronous web sockets, you have cores, cross-origin resource sharing settings, and you can even deploy it. So, it comes with its own little web server which you can run on your MicroPython dealy, right? But if you were going to put this into a big data center on a huge rack of servers, that might not be the best choice. So you can run it on microwsgi, which is awesome. You can run it on G Unicorn. You can even run it on um, G Unicorn with UVicorn workers to get like the awesome um, libuv high performance async support, right? So so you can deploy it onto kind of the top tier Python stuff. Put you know nginx in front of it and all that. It's pretty cool, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, That's one same. of the ways you run web apps on servers, especially in Python, because of the threading support is not as um, friction-free, I guess, you know, like the gill and all that, is you'll farm it out into multiple workers, right? So I can't remember what we have for Python bytes. Not, not too many, like two or four different worker processes. And each of the worker processes uh, kind of gets round-robin brought in. To handle a request. So like if one of them is busy, it'll automatically send the request over to another one. Right. Now, usually though, there's maybe a couple of limits, but one of the limits you really want to consider is I don't want to run the machine out of memory. So I think the ones we use like 150 megs per worker process. So at some point they'll only create so many and then the, the server's like, Okay, I've had it. But with this little thing that runs on MicroPython, you could scale the heck out of it. You could have a ton of worker processes under Micro Oh
1: yeah.
0: Or not uh, or under or under Uvicorn, right? And I actually did a, a little super simple test. Like I wrote the Flask equivalent of Hello World, literally exactly the same code with the changes I talked about. And then the MicroPython version, the uh, sorry, the Micro dot version, and that one, um, both running on C Python, nine megs for the this framework, twenty five megs for the Flask framework. Mm, so yeah. I don't know, maybe you can have twice as much processing. Uh, horizontal scale with this thing, but deployed to real servers. So there, there might actually be some interesting advantages to having this like really tight framework. Like I want to run it in a bunch of Docker containers that are like using the smallest amount of memory. I want to farm it out and say, no, I'll have thirty worker processes on this server, not five. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see, yeah, yeah. Nice. So Benful is pretty psyched about the the memory saving out there as well. So I think it's I think it's good.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this, for lots of jobs, where you don't need. If you don't need the power, don't use the power, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty neat. So, uh, well done, Miguel, and uh, yeah. Now, Brian, let me take just a moment and tell everyone about our sponsor. This episode of Python Bytes is brought to you by Influx Data, the makers of InfluxDB. InfluxDB is a database purpose built for handling time series data at a massive scale for real-time analytics. Developers can ingest, store, and analyze all types of time series data metrics, events, traces, in a single platform. So, dear listener, let me ask you a question. How would boundless cardinality and lightning-fast SQL queries impact the way you develop real-time applications? InfluxDB processes large time series data sets and provides low-latency SQL queries, making it a go-to choice for developers building real-time applications and seeking crucial insights. Optimized for developer efficiency, InfluxDB helps you create IoT analytics, and cloud applications using timestamped data rapidly and at scale. It's designed to ingest billions of data points in real time with boundless cardinality. InfluxDB streamlines building once and deploying across various products and environments from the edge, on-premise, and to the cloud. Try it for free at pythonbytes.fm slash influxDB. The link's in your podcast show notes. Thanks to Influx Data for supporting the show. Over to you. What's your next one?
1: I want to talk about GitHub Actions a bit. So, I'm a lot of my workflows have moved over to GitHub Actions. And so, there's actually three projects that I wanted to talk about um, Mm -hmm. that I thought were neat and worth. And they're all kind of in the GitHub action genre. Watchka. Watchka. What you got? What you got first? Um, (laughs) Watchka. Watch G H A. It uh, comes from Ned Batchelder. This is a. Uh, a just a simple tool to to watch your github action progress from a command line um so uh pretty i think it's a command line thing looks like command line uh-huh. um and so it looks so you can it has like little progress bar thing progress dots that go green and then they start out gray and then they go white and green and stuff um to see the the different things you got like uh we we're running 3.7 on ubuntu yeah. so th- if, if you've got a big matrix that's doing a lot of stuff it's kind of hard to keep up with what what all's going on so yeah um this is kind of neat to watch just a little tool from ned thanks ned um and, uh, uh, one of the other things i i i was thinking about so i just uh, my talk at py cascades was talking about um uh that you can share you can just uh, you can share packages without actually ever building it uh because pip install will build your wheel for you if if it's not built already, but you probably, probably should test that. Um, and one of the ways you can test some of that building is with um, with Linux, uh build and inspect Python package. Um, um, so this is a GitHub action that uh, will uh, it does a lot of stuff, but it, it does it does a build to make sure the build works. Um, it also does a, has a linter to to lint the wheel contents. Um, it also uploads the uh, wheel and the source distribution as GitHub Action artifacts, so it actually does generate the wheel for you uh, um, as an artifact, which is kind of neat. Um, the uh, it also uh, one of the things that's was one of the things that's always a mystery to me is like the makes making sure I have a, everything that I want in the SDist, um, the source distribution, and uh, this this will um, lint that and also well I guess it doesn't lint that contents of the estest, but it does print them out. So, uh, print does a tree of the estest and the wheel in the output so that you, you don't have to download it to check it. You can just look at it and get cool. GitHub output. Make
0: sure all the stuff. files and resources you might need to send out, come along.
1: Yeah. Um, and this, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I had recently made a change to a package and it took out the tests and I had somebody say, Oh, look, we, we want the tests back in. So this is kind of nice. Um, so, uh, uh, let's, uh, I guess that's, that's it with that. It's kind of a neat, uh, GitHub action thing, um, that you just put it, put it in, uh, it's one of those actions. So you just like specify it and it just works. It's nice. Uh, the, the third thing I wanted to bring up was, um, uh, PyTest, GitHub actions, annotate failures. Um, so this is a, uh, one of the, just a nice extra thing that I hadn't heard about before. Um, PyTest, it's under the PyTest dev, uh, uh, umbrella, but it, uh, it is a, it's a pip install sort of thing. And what it does is it makes sure that the, the all the, the proper stuff gets output, um, so that you can have nice annotated failure, your asserts, if there's failures, it's annotated nicely in GitHub actions. That's it. Just some fun GitHub action stuff. Yeah.
0: Now, once you really start getting into CI CD, it's, it's fun. you're just like, Oh, and now that it's automated, we could do this. So we could do that
1: yeah and then but when you automate all the things and then when things go wrong you're like oh god then we have to pull it down and check it again but having so having some of these debug stuff and things up up in the cloud um it's good yeah
0: very handy excellent all right well i have a pep for us to discuss okay 709 inlined comprehensions now this is a, <laughs> a debate that i seem to have only on youtube um if I'll do, like, I've done some videos about list comprehensions or other t- sort of design patterns, you might involve comprehensions. And people are like, oh, Michael, you said that a for loop is different than a list comprehension. But look, it says for thing in collection. And so they're the same. And so I just don't, you just don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know what? Let's disassemble it. Let's see what it does. Is it the same disassembly? No. It's completely different. Disassembly. That means the implementation of list comprehensions are different. I don't care if the word for appears in both of them. They're not the same thing. This pep brings them kind of tries to take the both the best of both worlds though, and it says there are some things we do to make comprehensions work, but look like they're just right there in the same function or in line, even if you don't have a function. But in fact, there's kind of this this thing behind the scenes that's happening where we create a nested function. That you never see, but the interpreter creates and then calls it, and that's the interpreter. Okay. Hmm. Uh, that's the, the the comprehension, rather. So this pep by Carl Meyer is basically saying we could get really good performance increases if we just change that implementation a little. And the reason it's created as a nested function and not just some inline code is what if you have a variable X in your regular function? and then you have x as a loop variable or as the the item variable in your comprehension or things like that right you want them to still be isolated so yeah. that's basically the idea here it says comprehensions are currently compiled as nested functions which provides isolation of the comprehension's iteration variable but is inefficient at runtime so pep 709 proposes to inline list dictionary and set comprehensions into the code where they are defined and provide the expected isolation by looking at all the variables, creating a copy of them, running this in place. And then if there was a variable for that loop variable, just put the old value back, right? Kind of push and pop them there. And the benefits here are up to two times as fast as comprehensions um, oh, great. are today. So and then uh, they said, uh, this is translating to an 11% speed up in one sample benchmark derived from real world code that makes heavy use of comprehensions in the context of doing actual work. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. I believe comprehensions were, in general, slightly faster than for loops that would just do something and put it in a list. So making it two times faster still is even better. So if this gets adopted, it's in draft form right now. I can go back to my YouTube comments and have even further nuanced discussions about like, (laughs) here's yet again, how they are not the same thing, but they look similar.
1: Um, So, yeah. I I never would have thought that the... Should reuse a variable in the in a comprehension though. I I, I don't do that, but I guess I no. I think it's, um like
0: if let's say you've got two list comprehensions, you know at x squared for x in first set, mm-hmm. um then x two x plus one for x in other set. And those are two separate list comprehensions. You don't want like
1: uh, one of those right. variables too. Okay.
0: You want to keep them. They want to be like okay, this x is only for this comprehension. That's what yeah. Like
1: so, if you have an embedded comprehension, you might use x in both places.
0: Right, or if you have an x x and y equal something, and then you generate a comprehension, you say x in there. Like, there's a couple of there's some weird. Yeah, yeah. I
1: I mean, I guess I was just thinking my own style. the The second one I would never do if I had if I was already using x, I probably wouldn't use x in the comprehension. But in in but I've I'll often use i or x in a comprehension in embedded ones and don't even think about it. So yeah interesting
0: cool yeah david Poole says uh there's i'm sure there's good reasons for it but i wonder why comprehensions don't use name mingling strategies for their var names every everyone's got to be named underscore underscore x <laughs> uh, no, that is so a good it reminds question. me of a joke um well so what it's doing now is it basically says um we're going to um we're going to um create a function and so that variable is a basically a local variable that function which has no influence Oh, I got it. Were you gonna actually tell us the joke?
1: <laughs> no, it's gonna wait. Okay. All right. Oh, but Same. we we or should we do it now? I oh, just um I think it was Ned Batchelder actually that, that uh mentioned that um that Dunder we often talk about Dunder init instead of double instead of double underscore init, but it's really it's really underscore underscore init underscore underscore. So it's really quunder. Um Wonder. And uh, and so I re- I responded to him and said I I don't I don't think so I think it's I think it's dunder and it dunder is what it should be um, <laughs> but that would be redundant.
0: Oh, <laughs> it's pretty bad. That's that's pretty much on par with the joke we got at the end. So prepare <laughs> okay. people. All right. So if one basically the way to understand this, you can't look at the code and tell, right? Which is why people incorrectly try to correct me on YouTube. So it. You look at the code and it looks like, oh, it's just a for list. And we took out the line breaks and put brackets. So it's the same thing. Um, So if you look at it now, you can see if you create a function that creates a list comprehension, you'll see it, it creates what's called a code object of type list comprehension. Then it calls make function. Then it loads the list. And then it does a bunch of stuff on it. And then it actually, you can see there's like the sub function that gets disassembled. And it says, we're going to build a list, load fast, iterate it, list append. And what's really interesting, this is the part that differs from for loops. There's a byte code called list underscore append. If you do this with a for loop where you have a list and you call append, it loads the function append and then calls append on the operands. But it's not in the runtime in a for loop. In a comprehension, there's a special byte code that runs. And that's like the primary difference, OK? so um, But the the drawback, right? So the benefit is list append is a byte code operation, not a function call. But the drawback is there's this object created. There's a stack frame created. There's a function call over to this comprehension call. Like There is an issue with all that stuff, right? So the new one just says, what we're going to do is we're going to create a new op code called load fast and clear, which is like, I'm going to load the variable x. And if there was one of those before, um, we're going to hang on to that just in case, you know, so we can put it back to avoid that. And then it calls build us, and like you can notice, there's no, there's no uh, function call, so no stack frame, no extra function call, there's no list comprehension object, all those things. And so this is the new bytecode operation that manages that um, variable isolation, and then you just do it directly, which saves you a bunch. Like right? we talked about the two x speed there. So that's the that's the. The PEP, people check it out, see what you think.
1: That's really interesting, Michael, but you had me at it's faster. <laughs> I know, exactly.
0: <laughs> I just want people to kind of know what's what's happening and why it might be faster and, and so on. So pretty neat. Um, yeah. You can see it does have the the only uh, possible, I guess, concern, or the, the reason they say, why is this even a PEP? Why is this not just, hey, I made it faster. Like, why do we need to discuss this? Yeah. Because like you said, Brian, like it's faster. We're done. Let's go is there are user observable changes if the user doesn't like themselves, basically. For example, why would a user return locals as the item you want put into a list during a list comprehension? Well, if you did do that, you would see that it's not the same as before. I have no <laughs> no idea why you would ever try to do that, but that would technically would be a breaking change. The other one, slightly more valid perhaps, is that if there's an exception inside the list comprehension, because it used to be in a separate function call, it was there's it would show up in the actual traceback call stack, mm-hmm. right? But now you are not in another function, it, you're just on a line in the OG function. So you you don't have that. Basically, it, it's missing from there. So you would have a slightly different traceback exception. Well, traceback, the exception would be the same, but the traceback call stack listing would be different. That potentially affects somebody, but yeah. not a lot. I don't know. Yeah. It's a 2x, it's a trade-off. I would totally think is worth taking.
1: Yeah, but I, I see why that's a, it's a observable interface or an observable behavior change, so... Yeah. 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 Although I learned from uh, Brett Cannon just a couple weeks ago that um, locals often has weird stuff in it. If you look at locals a lot, sometimes there's stuff in there that you don't recognize.
0: Um, Interesting. Yeah. The locals one seems like, you know what? Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the traceback one, I can see, okay, we're always looking for this. And like, if I get an error, I try to like, look at the traceback to figure out what to tell people or I don't know, yeah. theoretically could have, it still seems unlikely. I I feel like you shouldn't depend upon (laughs) what's listed there, but I'm sure somebody does somewhere.
1: Well, like IDE makers and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, well, that's it for all of our items. You got any extras? I don't. Do you? I thought I didn't have any extras, but I'm... I think by the time... I'm going to try to predict the future a little bit because I have some control over it. So I do have an extra. Um, I'm going to be releasing either today or tomorrow. By the time this podcast comes out, this is going to be released. But if you're watching it live, it's not yet released. So I'm going to be releasing a new course, Python Web Apps that Fly with CDNs. It's just over a three-hour course that's all about taking um, CDNs and applying them to like Flask web apps, and also hosting video content and large files, and how do you geo replicate that? Um, we use a lot of these techniques in Python bytes to like make the website faster, as well as to make uh, to deliver you know terabytes of MP4, MP3s to people. So check that out. I will put a link in the show notes. Again, if you're listening live, this is not out yet, but it will be out by the time the MP3 hits your podcast player. So if you have the audio only version, go check it out. Links in the show notes. Nice. Yeah, I think that's a really, really cool course. I think there's so much uh, people can get out of it in, in terms of like, it's really easy. You know, 30 minutes and you're like, oh, our app is so much faster and our, we can use smaller servers. That's really great.
1: Well, three hours plus 30 minutes.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, once you, kn- once you know the thing, it's probably 30 minutes to apply it to your app. That's yeah. what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, David Poole says, the traceback one could be worked around if the debug compiled, use the old function style method. Hmm, like aggressive optimizations and GCC with inline functions. Hmm, okay, possibly interesting. You would have to have people buy into that, but right. I mean, I'm sure Brian, you're very well aware of the the debug versus release builds and optimization levels and and all that stuff in C, right?
1: No, I mean, yes, but I don't use them.
0: Um, no, you don't I, really uh,
1: need that. Well, I don't. I personally don't like to. I don't like to test in something my user isn't going to see. So. I always test an optimized release. Um, Got it. So. Yeah, yeah.
0: But it can make a big it can make a big difference. But the, in the Python world, we don't really discuss that so much, right?
1: Yeah, and except for the 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 comment, the one thing to be aware of uh, that I would while we're while we're on it, we probably haven't mentioned this lately is asserts are awesome in your test code, but they're not that great in your um. It, actually, they're they're pretty great in your function code also, but just don't depend on on it. Because assert lines could be completely removed if you have the optimization on. So Absolutely. Um,
0: yeah. All right. You ready for a joke? Yes. You fan of movies? Like watch watching movies and stuff?
1: Yeah, I just went to a great movie. Yeah, so. Nice. Well, as a uh, software
0: person, especially if you do a lot with Linux or Mac OS, you might not be able to watch the movies too much. This one says, I can't watch movies on my computer. All it does is bash scripts. <laughs> bash on the scripts of the movie. Oh, not plot okay. Or... <laughs> Or run shelf scripts. I'm not sure which.
1: Uh, okay, that's funny. I think sort of. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> anyway, that's what uh, I got for you. I have a, I have an incredible one that I, I want to put up, but it's like only video that has music and no no spoken word. So I don't think it fits for this format. But I'll you know what I'll throw it in. I'll throw it in. People also check out the movie. It's about releasing stuff to production. So it's uh, it's pretty epic. I'll put it cool. in the list. But uh, I won't play it's something that's like 30 seconds long that has nothing but. Music.
1: Cool. Nice. All, all right. right. Um. All right. Is that all we got? That's
0: all we got. It's a wrap. So it's a wrap. Yeah. Thanks as always. Thank you. See you later.